Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Jill Wine Banks. Barb McQuaid is away this week with her daughter on a sporting trip. So we'll miss her, and so will you. But today, we will go ahead without her talking about the new voting rights bill being considered in Congress. We'll discuss the indictment by Special Counsel Durham, who was appointed by the Trump administration to investigate the origins of the Russian inquiry. And we'll explain civilian control of the military after new revelations of General Milley's concerns about Trump. As always, we really look forward to tackling some of your questions at the end of the show. But before we get to any of those conversations, it's been a week of a lot of food and a lot of non-food, for Joyce and I at least, because it was Yom Kippur, which means you have to fast. So Joyce, I know you cook a lot. What kind of foods did you cook for what's called break fast? That's breakfast in two words as a break from the fast. You know, my husband, who's not Jewish, always needs the reminder that Jewish holidays go from sundown to sundown. So you start fasting at sundown one day and you end at sundown the next. Um, and it, it gives me actually a lot of um, compassion for my Muslim friends who do it for far longer than we do, right? I'm always super impressed that they do it for an entire month when I struggle with a day. But this was a huge week for food in our house. It's it's the um, the birthday of my oldest child was this week, and so we decided to make him special meals every night. He's he's grown. He's a lawyer. He's just taken a new job that he's really excited about. So we thought let's have some fun. So I made his favorite dinner, rack of lamb, for his actual birthday on Tuesday night. It's one of his favorite things. It's super easy, by the way. I I use the Joy of Cooking recipe. It's sort of a a no-fail recipe with a good green salad and some spinach, and and it's a meal. Um, And got a beautiful cake from a local baker, Last Chance Baking in Birmingham. The cake was stunningly gorgeous. There's a picture on my Instagram feed. Uh, So my husband followed up the night before Yom Kippur and made a beautiful meal with salmon and fresh asparagus. And then last night I went for the lamb trifecta, you know, because it's hard for me to cook on Yom Kippur. I mean, if you have to go in and cook at at all during breaks during the day, it's awful. So I made a lamb cassoulet and actually put it on the night before and just had to do a little bit of the work in the middle of the afternoon. So lamb shanks and beautiful cassoulet beans and everything started out in duck fat. I mean, nobody tell Noom that I did this because Noom is going to (laughs) hate me this week. But it was it was really delicious and well worth the effort, and now I'm going to have to fast for the whole weekend to get over it. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, in addition to Happy New Year to you both, uh, I'm ready to convert if I get that <laughs> after the... I get really enthusiastic about food. I'm sorry if I just bored you guys with a whole week no, of food. No, you made I my think mouth we, water is what you did. Yeah, and we both love... I, I really enjoy cooking, but I enjoy cooking things that are not just like grilling something. I like making soups and casseroles. So that's my favorite thing. And and you're right, of course, you don't want to be cooking when you can't eat or even taste it. I mean, it's hard to cook if you can't taste as you're cooking to know that you're doing it right. Um, I solved the problem by going to a breakfast at a very good friend who's been doing this for many years and who orders uh, lox and bagel and whitefish and sable and kippered salmon, all from New York. 
um, because she thinks it's the only place that has the right stuff. And Kugel. That's true. That's absolutely true. <laughs> no, it isn't. It isn't. I, it is. You have to order from Zabar's or forget yeah, it. Yeah, well, <laughs> she had a great spread. It was really wonderful. And the Kugel was as good as my mother used to make, a recipe that mm. I, every time I try to make, does not come out tasting like my mother's Kugel. Kugel is a noodle dish with raisins and apples uh, and cinnamon, and it's sweet and delicious, and I love it. But I just, it's one of the few things that I have my mother's handwritten recipe, and I just can't get it right. But I, I brought with me some of my home canned preserves because part of our tradition is to wish someone a sweet new year. And so I thought, what better way than with my peach preserve? So she got some of my canned peach preserve, canned in my new uh, Presto pressure canner, which was a gift from one of my very dearest friends. Um, A daunting item to use, I will say. But still, I liked it. It was really good. And so what did you eat this week, Kim? Well, I, you know, I didn't have nearly as wonderful <laughs> a feast as as you two had. But when when Joyce was talking about making lamb, sort of similarly, I, it's a tradition for me for Easter uh, to make lamb, as a lot of us uh, do. And uh, lamb chops is one of my favorite things to make. So I, maybe I will do it. Uh, I won't wait until next spring to do that because you made it sound really good. Although I need to be... Uh, a little less stressed and busy because yesterday when I was cooking dinner, I, I took a cast iron skillet out of the oven, put it uh, down, forgot instantly that I had just taken it out of the oven and I grabbed the handle. So I currently have oh. a terribly burned uh, hand, but aloe vera, oh. y'all, keep it in your house because it really, I did not realize how important that is on a burn. I would be in excruciating pain right now if wow. I did not literally, like basically bathe my hand all night in aloe vera. Um, so that saved me. But yeah, be mindful when you're cooking. Good, <laughs> good advice. I, I bought a new uh, food processor and I wanted to test it. And one of the things I had to do for the ingredients was to peel them. And I bought a new peeler. And oh. I actually cut my finger on oh, the no. peeler. I mean, Ouch. whoever thought of a peeler being that sharp? But they're sharp. It, yeah. Well, this one was, I guess it's because I've been using old ones that have been so dull, it didn't matter. So it was an injury prone week for you and for me. <laughs> um, and maybe for the country, let's talk about maybe going to voting rights right now. Yes. So there was big news from Capitol Hill this week. Senate Democrats came to a consensus on a voting rights bill called the Freedom to Vote Act. And by consensus, I mean there was Joe Manchin on one side and all the other Democrats (laughs) on the other side, but they they eventually worked it out. Um, It's neither the For the People Act nor the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which we've talked about a lot, and both of which were passed in the House. It doesn't do everything that those bills do, but it does something. So, Joyce, I want to turn to you. Exactly what does the Freedom to Vote Act that Democrats in the Senate came up with, what does it do? Yeah, so a little context here, because there were these two key bills in the House, and they do different things. They're progressing together. Now they're both sitting over on the Senate side. The For the People Act has been renamed the Right to Vote Act. But but here's why it's important to have the provisions of both of the bills. 
the John Lewis Voting Rights Restoration Act actually takes care of something we've talked about a lot. That's the fact that the Supreme Court in Shelby County versus Holder gutted the provisions of the Voting Rights Act. It got worse this past term in Brnovich, and that made it virtually impossible for DOJ or for private litigants to challenge state voting laws and other practices in the absence of just cut and dry evidence of discriminatory intent. So there's that side of the equation. But passing that Restored Voting Rights Act alone isn't enough, and that's why the House also sent forward the For the People Act. It's got three top-line goals as it manifests in this new um, mansion-birthed Senate-side bill. So here are the three things it does. The bill makes it more difficult to suppress voters. It makes it easier for people to register. It has online registration. It has automatic registration makes it easier for voters to stay registered. There's no more pruning you off the active voting rolls if you miss a couple of elections. It makes it easier for people to vote. There will be a national holiday, 15 days of early voting, vote by mail, drop boxes, and equitable and official and efficient polling places. And and I want to highlight that last provision. That makes sense if, like me, you do election protection work in Alabama, and you know that every election cycle in heavily minority boxes in Montgomery, Alabama, there will be long lines and they will run out of ballots. This new law will prohibit those sorts of discriminatory practices. And of course, you have to be able to have your ballot counted. So this bill will provide for improved infrastructure, um, and it will help to, uh, to count ballots. So this all gets carried forward in the new Senate bill. The bill also protects election integrity, and most importantly, it prohibits the removal of state and county election officials, this measure that we've seen in the Georgia bill. It establishes national vote counting standards so people can have confidence in the integrity of elections. And finally, it has what I'll call citizen empowerment provisions. It, for instance, bans political gerrymandering and improves disclosure. So look, without these essential measures, if if these bills don't clear the Senate, the 2022 elections and future elections are in grave danger. We will be a significantly lessened democracy. And there is, you know, Kim, I know we've talked about this some, there's no guarantee that these bills are going to pass in the Senate, even this compromise version. One really encouraging factor, though, is that President Biden went on record last week saying he was ready to go twist arms on the filibuster issue. And here's why that matters. I think that they'll give Joe Manchin some, you know, maybe a week or 10 days to see if he can find 10 Republican senators to vote for these bills. It will take 10 Republican votes. That seems to me like um, an impossibility. You know, I hate to be pessimistic. I just don't think that there are 10 Republican senators out there that will vote for these measures. So that means this will come down to whether or not we bypass the filibuster. It's important that the president is now on record saying that he's ready to twist arms. Um, And and let me just say one other quick thing. As I read this bill, I thought, boy, these measures are great. And I understand why people in Georgia are super excited. And Arizona, it provides protection for some rights that they're afraid that they've been losing. 
It looks very different if you're in Alabama or Idaho or North Dakota, North Dakota or Mississippi. This bill, this is a floor, not a ceiling. I mean, this provides minimum national standards. In Alabama, where we now have one day to vote, we would suddenly have 15. We would be guaranteed the right to have no excuse absentee voting. This would significantly alter the landscape in some of the most needy jurisdictions in the country. So that, I think, is important to flag. Yeah, just on your point about uh, Joe Manchin being given 10 days, if he gives a a quick phone call to uh, Mitch McConnell, he won't need 10 days. He knows exactly what will happen. But before we get to that. It's about 30 seconds. Exactly. Right? So before we get to that, I want to talk to Jill about what this, uh, what what the Freedom to Vote Act doesn't do, because it is different from what was passed in the House. It is. And, and I want to say it would take Manchin exactly one second to go online and he would exactly. see that there is no McConnell. hope that McConnell has said absolutely said not. It. Okay. Unless his members go rogue, right? Which I just don't think I, is going to happen. I think it's. I, I, you Even know, Susan Collins is a no. Come on, y'all. I, I'm, I'm all for Manchin trying, but I'm all for Manchin living up to what he said, which is the fundamental basis of our democracy is the right to vote, and that he's going to have yeah. to step up on the filibuster because, Joyce, I can't agree with you more that this is the time when we have to change the filibuster rules. They have no purpose in our democracy now other other than to allow a tyranny of the minority. So I'm all for it. But back to your question, um, Kim. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Some strong feelings here. Yes. um, I'm one of those people who is always optimistic, although on this one I am realistic and say there's no chance and that filibuster has to be changed or we can't do it. Um, I also was very much like it's not worth compromising because if the Republicans aren't going to agree to it anyway, we may as well pass the strongest bill we can. But then I watched, you know, people like Mark Elias, who is, you know, to me, the superhero of voting and um, Norm Orenstein and Amy Klobuchar and many others who said, no, this isn't actually a bad bill that Manchin has come up with. And as Joyce pointed out, it does a lot of good things. For me, the most important missing element is what states have done to prevent counting your votes. And I don't mean the technical stuff that is taken care of. I'm talking about saying, well, if we think there's fraud, we don't have to prove it. We just have to say it and we'll reject the results. That, to me, is the total total obstruction of our democracy. And um, that has to be countered and has to be taken care of. No one, no state can say, I don't care what the vote is. We think there was fraud and we're going to go ahead with it. Just look at all the lawsuits that were brought and the absence of any evidence. And so... That has to be addressed, or I will not be happy with the outcome of this. That, to me, is the most important thing. All the other things that were in the original law, um, number one, may be added back in once the Republicans aren't supporting it anyway, if we get rid of the filibuster and can go ahead with 50 plus the vice president, then we may as well include back some of the things that weren't 
included. But even things like the voter ID that Joyce mentioned has been cured, even though um, it doesn't require that there be IDs, but it said if you're going to have an ID law, you have to be reasonable about it and you have to allow utility bills or student IDs. You can't require only a driver's license because too many people don't have a driver's license. So I, I think it's a good bill and that with that one significant omission, it's fine. Yeah, so I, I want to get to this idea of, is it enough? You know, do we like it? I know Joyce and I tweeted about this a little bit. And we might have a rare moment of disagreement, <laughs> Kim. And look, I appreciate what Mark Elias said about it. You know, he, he made the, beforehand, he made the statement that there's really no room for compromise between an arsonist and a firefighter, which I really uh, agree with. But then he also, he, he put up a post that pointed out all the really good stuff that is in this bill, the urgency of this moment and why it is so badly needed. And I certainly um, agree with that. I agree with other folks like Stacey Abrams who say that this is so important that we need to do something. And there are a lot of things in this bill that will f um, forward that. I guess my biggest problem and, and why this wasn't a purely joyful moment for me is because this moment is so existential. And there is nothing more important to the protection of our democracy than the ability for everyone to vote, that this not be uh, subject to a purposeful political attack by one party that is aimed not only at, you know, democracy be damned, but also really targeted toward black and brown folks. This is a, there is a party in our country that really want folks like me not to cast their votes. And after all of the struggles, one reason why I vote in every race, I vote for, you know, dog catcher. I vote for every local thing because I know it took not one, but two constitutional amendments plus federal law plus local laws to ensure that I could, you know, the constitution wasn't enough. And it's so um, appalling the way that it's being attacked right now. And the idea that one senator from a state whose population makes up less than one half of 1% of the U.S. population is in the position to place himself in the way of that progress until his demands are met is beyond offensive to me. So yes, this bill is better than it could have been because same senator wanted to impose things like ID requirements, which as a North Carolina federal judge once said, can be crafted to be, uh, quote, almost sur uh, surgically, with almost surgical precision to deny the rights of black voters uh, to vote, that he even considered things like that, um, is really just repugnant to my moral fiber. So I'm, I'm glad that voting rights very likely could pass out of the Congress. I really am. And I agree with folks who say, you know what, this isn't the perfect train, but it's the one that's leaving the station, so I'm on it. I, I agree with that. But I'm salty about this. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I'm Kim, salty about Kim, this. Kim, I like salty Kim, and you, you know, maybe we have less disagreement than we originally thought we did. Mm. My pragmatic view is this: 
if we do not protect the right to vote at this juncture, I mean, I hate to be all doom and gloom, but I really do think democracy hangs in the balance. And if we go forward in an environment where people can't register and can't vote, nothing else is really going to matter. So I'm in favor of taking these very strong steps right now and not considering them the end point. We obviously have an obligation to continue to expand the protection. And, you know, I hear a lot of comfortable people, and and Kim, to your point, that there is a deliberate effort to keep black and brown people from voting, which anybody who's got their eyes open knows is true, right? I mean, there was a Texas case where there was just evidence in the record of discriminatory intent in the creation of the laws. Alabama, not a whole lot better. And so if you don't understand that that's true, you're, you're just not paying attention. But it is a mistake if people think that the effort to suppress votes is only the votes of black and brown people. And if conservatives continue to get away with that, they will come for other people who yep. aren't their voters. So, you know, protect other people's rights to vote because it's the right thing to do and you should, but also maybe have a little bit of self-interest there in protecting your own vote. So I, I uh, have a lot of faith in Stacey Abrams, who I think is the um, rocket scientist of voting in this country right now. Yeah. If she's comfortable with this bill, I'm comfortable with this bill. And I'm going to make one last point. I'm going to give you this one thing, uh, Mr. Senator for West Virginia. But when we get to the filibuster, I'm not having it. Like, come on. <laughs> You know, you know the truth. Like you got a lot of what you wanted. Now it's time to give that up. It sounds like you guys have come closer together. And I agree with (laughs) both of you on what you've said. And I just want to point out, I'm always sort of the pragmatist and the, um, although you think I'm the most liberal of you, I I actually am one who uh, supported Joe Biden because I wanted a middle of the road person who could attract and possibly reach compromise. Um, But as I said, I think that this bill, if it has to go the route of changing the filibuster, is essential and that we should add back, because I didn't add, I mean, I talked about my one major problem with the bill, what was missing. But let me just mention a few of the other things that I would put back in that are missing, and that is public financing uh, for congressional campaigns. I would change the way that voter rolls are purged right now and prohibit that kind of uh, roll purging and reform the FEC leadership uh, so that we can end the gridlock that exists there. And I would prohibit states from using partisan redistricting. Um, And of course, the one thing that is missing is the mandate for voter ID. So that I would leave out. Uh, that's, That's a good one. And just make sure that. But you know, can I just say something about that one? I'm not a fan of Voter ID Act. Alabama passed its Voter ID Act and put it into effect as soon as Shelby County came down. On the other hand, because that provision broadens the number of you know ID mechanisms right. you can use, including the reformed utility yes. bills, yeah, the yeah. reformed one. I think that's actually something. To, to push back on. If conservatives want to push against this bill, right. I think Democrats now have a talking point that this bill is fair, that it meets their concerns. Would I have liked to have had no ID? Sure. 
But given the world that we live in, this may be a smart strategy that allows for political compromise without denying folks their rights. Yeah, I agree with you. But Jill is right that it could have been a lot worse in the the original proposal. No kidding. Well, this has been a really big week in the news, enough to keep you awake at night. So I'm really glad that I have a Helix mattress to unwind on. What about you, Kim? Yeah, you know, that quiz that you take when you go uh, to the Helix site, I I was a little skeptical at first, but it really was easy to use. Um, It allowed you to pick the mattress that is right for you. I think I have discovered that I need a, a bit of a softer mattress than I thought I did beforehand. I always had a very, very firm mattress. I thought that gave you a better night's sleep, but I sleep so much better with a little more cushion. Uh, and you are right. This has been a week that was exhausting. So I was, I'm extra appreciative of my bed. Joyce, what about you? Like both of y'all, I've become so focused on how important it is to get a good night's sleep, and you just can't do that if you don't have the right mattress. So I'm such a fan of the quiz. I'm getting ready to redo a bedroom for one of our sons, and I'm going to go through the quiz with him to purchase his mattress, too. Oh, oh, that's great. What a good idea. I, I know when I took the quiz from Helix, I was surprised that it recommended a softer mattress than I thought I wanted, which was the hardest I could have. But it matched me with the Helix Midnight mattress, and it was exactly what I wanted, something just right for me. And I have to ask everyone, why buy a mattress made for someone else? That's totally right. And you can just go to helixsleep.com slash sisters to take their two-minute sleep quiz to match with a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. From soft to firm, plus size, and even cooling, they have it all. Not to mention that it's gotten many doctors and chiropractors to give it the thumbs up. Helix mattresses come with a 10-year warranty, and you can try it out for 100 nights risk-free. It gets delivered right to your door, and they'll pick it up if needed, so you never have to go to a mattress store again. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders. I'm really excited about that because I will be taking advantage of it. And two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash sisters. That's helixsleep.com slash sisters for up to $200 off and two free pillows. And look for the link in our show notes. Thanks to Helix for sponsoring this episode, and we thank you, our listeners, for supporting Helix. And now I want to turn to another issue, which is John Durham, who was appointed U.S. Attorney for Connecticut by President Trump, and then was assigned in April of 2019 to investigate the origins of the FBI investigation of Russia's interference in the 2016 election. In October of 2020, just before Trump lost the election, Durham was secretly appointed as the special counsel to investigate the same subject. And then more than a year ago in that role, he indicted an ex-FBI lawyer named Kleinsmith for... um, altering a CIA email which was used in support of a wiretap on Carter Page. That was his only indictment until now. Trump was disappointed back then, 
because he said prosecutors did not reveal any evidence in charging documents that showed Mr. Kleinsmith's actions were part of any broader conspiracy to undermine Mr. Trump. Uh, Now on Thursday, just three days before the statute of limitations runs on the event, Durham returned his second indictment against another lawyer, again for a false statement to the FBI. Trump is probably disappointed again by the one-count indictment for a false statement because, uh, as many have said, it's based on very thin evidence and particularly concerning proof of materiality, which is an essential element of the crime charged. The lawyer who has been indicted is Michael Sussman. He was a partner at Perkins Coie until resigning as a result of this indictment. Interestingly, I've already mentioned Mark Elias, and he was a partner at that firm. Um, He left just a few weeks ago uh, to set up his own firm. So it's interesting that they've both now left the firm. Um, It's also the firm that many will associate with the creation of the Steele dossier. Um, Anyway, as to the indictment, it's a single false statement charge, and it's the same crime that Flynn, Michael Flynn, was accused of and pleaded guilty to twice before Barr intervened and then Trump pardoned him. Let's look at the specific allegations against Sussman, what the government would have to prove to sustain a conviction, and what we know of his defense. So let me start with um, Kim. If you could summarize, it's a 27-page indictment. Um, So it's a little hard to summarize, but you know, I think I, I know you can do it. You're a journalist and you're used to getting down to the lead. So take it away. Yeah. As you said, it's 27 pages, but it's actually pretty straightforward. I don't think that it's so hard to summarize. Essentially, Sussman is ac- accused of lying. Right. Um, so it stems from a September 19th, 2016 meeting between Sussman and the then FBI general counsel, James Baker about suspicions that Sussman expressed about potential communications between the Trump campaign and Russia. Now, it's important to remember, ultimately, a a lot of folks looked into this, the FBI, uh, the Robert Mueller investigation, and nothing came from this uh, alleged suspicion about the, the, the the communication that Sussman was talking about. Um, it's also important to note, as you mentioned, the law firm uh, Perkins Coie is, you know, here in D.C., it's a very big political law firm. And it does have a political division that Mark Elias used to run. Um, and he, Mark Elias did work among for, among other people, the DNC. But Sussman was in a different, was in a completely different group in that firm. He didn't work with Mark Elias. And that's important in, in, for his defense. So the indictment uh, itself says, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit from it, quote, during the meeting between Sussman and uh, James Baker, the indictment says, during the meeting, Sussman lied about the capacity in which he was providing the allegations to the FBI. Specifically, Sussman stated falsely that he was not doing his work on the aforementioned allegations, quote, for any client, end quote, which led the FBI general counsel to understand that Sussman was acting as a good citizen, merely passing along information, not as a paid advocate for a political operative. That's uh, 
or political operative. That's what the indictment itself says. Uh, it goes on to say, quote, in fact, Sussman acted on behalf of specific clients, namely a U.S. technology industry executive, a U.S. internet company, and the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. That end quote. So all that is quoted in the indictment. Now, Sussman denies that he was working uh, for the campaign and that um, he disclosed the clients that he had, but specifically stated that he was making these claims on his own behalf and not on behalf of a client. Um, so the indictment essentially says that his work, uh, his there are billing records that show that he billed the Clinton administration, and that's part of their claim that they have proof that he was working on behalf of a, another of a client, uh, specifically the Clinton campaign, and also this uh, internet executive that isn't named. So it's one count. The count is of making false, fictitious, or fraudulent statements to the executive branch, in this case, the FBI, in violation of federal law. Okay, so 27 pages is a long indictment, and sometimes that shows real strength because it details a lot of information. Uh, Sometimes it's the opposite. It's like a lot of filler. And so I'd like to know what you think here. How strong does the case look and what are its weaknesses? So on the face of the indictment, it does not look strong. It's possible that DOJ has more evidence, but I mean, you know, they've given us 27 pages. So you would think that if there was something there, it would actually be in the document. The, the core of this case is a conversation that Michael Sussman, a former DOJ employee, um, someone who was involved in CSIPS, the unit that deals with um, uh, internet and computer-related crimes, uh, that he has with Jim Baker. Uh, Baker is then the general counsel of the FBI. And so Sussman goes in and talks with Baker about some information about uh, that, that has been uncovered that talks about a possible connection between servers in Trump Tower and Alpha Bank, which is uh, apparently considered a marker for Russia, and the fact that there's about to be a story, a news story that will detail this connection and, you know, sort of says, and here I am as a public citizen to share that information with you before it drops. And of course, all we know right now is what's in DOJ's complaint. That's, that's the side of the story that we've heard. But I would compare this 27-page complaint to the two, or indictment to the two-page information that Robert Mueller used to indict General Mark Flynn on the, Mike Flynn on the same charge. 18 U.S. Code 1001, lying to the government. And that was a case involving Flynn's lies to the FBI about conversations and communications he has had with Russia's ambassador, sort of a more weighty subject matter than a conversation between two old friends about who the client was. And, and, you know, Mueller only used two pages to indict Flynn Ultimately, Bill Barr dismisses that case, but it's only after Flynn has pleaded guilty twice. I mean, that was a weighty uh, charging document on these same charges that didn't take merely the amount of time. So the Sussman indictment gets returned just before the statute of limitations runs. Five-year statute of limitations. It runs on Sunday. The indictment spends a lot of time on irrelevant details that look a lot more like they're intended to inflame passions than they are to explain the charges. 
And some of what they're citing in this indictment sounds like it would be inadmissible hearsay. You know, notes coming from a third party about a conversation with with Baker, that doesn't sound admissible to me. So I suspect that if this case goes to trial, there will be a lot of motions by the defense to strike some of the language from this indictment before the jury hears it. Jill, I think you want to dig deeper into the elements of 18 U.S. Code 1001 in a minute. So I'll just say it, it looks to me like the real issue here um, isn't what Sussman said about who the client was. You know, Trump had tweeted back on January 22nd of 2019 about Sussman by name, and he expressed outrage that Sussman had provided information that led to this investigation of, of Trump servers and Alpha Bank. This looks, I mean, it, it one possible interpretation of this indictment brought by a former Trump-appointed inspector general is that this is political revenge, and that's sort of a bad look for DOJ. So I tweeted about how, to me, this looked political and that it was hard to see it any other way. And I think your point about the Mueller indictment versus this one, Mueller basically said, this is what Flynn said, that wasn't true. That's really what people need. I mean, that is clear. In reading this 27 pages, I was scratching my head and really taking notes and trying to figure out who is this executive, who is this lawyer, who is that, and what does this all mean? And to your point about having stuff stricken, there's at least one paragraph, paragraph 15, uh, which has, to me, is really an irrelevant attempt to undermine one of the potential witnesses in this case, the cyber executive who Sussman did represent. Um, and it talks about how he sent an email that if Hillary won, he was going to get a job in cybersecurity. And we should point out that Sussman is a cybersecurity lawyer. Right. He is not in the political division of the law firm. Um, that wasn't his role. His role was cyber. And what he was reporting was cyber data that made it look like there was some back channel between this Alpha Bank in Russia and the Trump campaign. It turns out that it probably was not a back channel, that it was a marketing company's um, server that served a lot of clients, including the Trump organization. But that was something Sussman didn't know. He thought he was, or I'm guessing that he thought, I don't know this, that he was protecting the country and revealing information that would be useful. So, but let's look at some of the things that the government would have to prove. And Joyce, you have um, tweeted about this materiality, and, and you've been on MSNBC talking about materiality, which is an essential element of proof for a case like this. So tell us why this isn't really material, even if it was false that he wasn't there on his own, that he was there for a client. Why does that matter? What, what's the, how is it material to the FBI? It's interesting. The word materiality didn't actually appear in all the clauses of the statute until 1996 when it was amended to, to do that. But materiality is a requirement that has come to mean that the government has to prove uh, that, that it was an important lie, that it was a lie that 
that really influenced the way that the government agency at stake acted or reacted. So here what's so interesting about this, and, and you know, Baker and Sussman are not strangers to each other. And so it's a little bit difficult to contemplate that Baker didn't know that Sussman was at a firm that did some work for the DNC and for the Clinton campaign. But but setting that aside, had this sort of information where a cyber expert was coming to the FBI and saying, we're seeing something sort of funny here, the FBI would have undertaken that investigation no matter who the client was, right? It didn't really matter where it was coming from. If that information that the FBI had received looked credible, then they would have checked it out further, like they did here. So it's very hard to believe that even if you credit the the worst possible construction here, that Sussman was intentionally lying, it's tough to believe that it's material. You know, there's a more fundamental requirement in this statute, which is that he has to have knowingly and willfully lied. And if Sussman's able to raise a defense that says, look, I was just bringing forward evidence that I was legitimately concerned about, I believed at the time that this was a a real concern, and I believed that I was honest about disclosing who I was working for and why I was there, it's a tough case to prove. DOJ will have the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. They may have trouble with the jury. They could also have a potentially have trouble on appeal. So there's some real so issues So I'm going to ask here, you guys something because sure. I was not, a, I was a civil attorney and not a, uh, on the criminal side like you guys. But on the civil side, on in federal court, there are rules that require you when you, when you draft a complaint, you need to state um, material facts that can back up your complaint in the complaint. You can't wait till discovery. And in some state courts, you can like file a complaint in anything and then you know throw spaghetti at the wall and then you go through discovery and then you kind of whittle them down. Federal court's not playing anymore. You need to state the facts. And the fact that there was so much mushiness on this side made me just reading this as a civil lawyer, I thought I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have drafted this without more specific. Talk about what the rules are there just in the, not just in the, in the standard of proof that they'll have to prove in the end, but in the pleading. Okay, so you I know, want to let Joyce, indictment. Joyce, just one second, Go I ahead, want to let Jill. Joyce answer that part of the question, but I want for our audience to hear some of the language in the indictment that may be relevant to this discussion. So on materiality, they the, the indictment says um, that if the FBI had known that he was representing the clients, multiple clients that he allegedly was representing as opposed to being there on his own, that they it would have made them suspicious and um, they would have, you know, maybe re-looked at things in a different way. But I think, as Joyce has already said, unless they ignored it in the same way they ignored the gymnast's complaints of sexual assault and just blown it off, they would have had to investigate the facts that were alleged. But the indictment also says the FBI might have learned and might have assessed it differently. I mean, to use the word might in an indictment, that's, I think, what you mean when you're talking about it being mushy. And um, so I I, I think that that's really important background before Joyce answers about why it matters. 
Yeah, so I'm not as worried about that language, to be honest, because I think you have to show that it, it had the potential to influence. But what you have to do in a criminal proceeding is you have to allege every element in the statute. So all of the traditional elements here, knowingly and willfully, the false statement. And of course, you know, after the case law that I discussed, the amendment to the statute where you now have to prove that it's material, all of those elements have to be in the indictment. But nothing more, Kim. It's a really interesting comparison to civil practice. Sometimes we see these lengthy, convoluted criminal indictments. You've heard us refer to those as speaking indictments. That usually happens when you've got a complicated conspiracy and the government needs to explain enough to make the indictment comprehensible. Look, sometimes prosecutors do try to get some important facts out in their speaking indictments. But this is next level. Um, and I, I think what you're saying here is, is where I started on this one. Some of this looks more like it's an effort to prejudice than it is an effort to prove. I would expect that we will see pretrial motions from the defense in that regard. I'm going to add two things to that, which is on speaking indictments, there are two reasons why they may be used. One is because it's a case of public interest and so that the public in reading it can understand what it's really about. And the other is because it is a document, unlike most documents, that the jury can take into the jury room with them. And so it's a good way of summarizing evidence that you may want. I don't think this document will help anybody. Um, and, and if we have time for just one more quick question, it's one that's bothering me, which is the indictment does allege a second meeting at which supposedly Sussman repeated the same lie to a second federal agency. And so that made me wonder, well, if that's true, why is there only one count? Why didn't they indict him for lying twice? Anybody have a theory on that? I think we'll see more on that as this case moves forward. I think that's a, a good catch by you. This is one of those weeks where I've been really interested in having good meals and good comfort food because it's actually been a little bit cooler here. I know you don't think September cool Alabama, but that's been the case. So I've been grateful to have some of the really nice HelloFresh meals on hand, especially the vegetarian grain bowl focused meals. What about you, Jill? Well, our weather has been great in Chicago, quite surprising, but really has been lovely so that's not the reason that I love uh, having HelloFresh. I love having all the choices that it offers and the comfort it offers me in cooking them and the feeling of accomplishment I have when I put on the table something that looks like it had to have come from a restaurant because it's drizzled with sauces and it was easy to do. It's really fun and it really does take my mind off the news and help me to relax to do the cooking. So I love it. What about you, Kim? Yeah, I think fun is an important part of it. You know, when when we have HelloFresh here, when I volunteer to make dinner, I always notice somehow that my, my husband usually shows up and he starts helping and, you know, looking at the instructions and it ends up being sort of a, you know, a a, a a partnership in, in creating dinner. I think he, he doesn't want to miss out on the fun. And it is. It has really fresh ingredients. It teaches us ways to prepare food that we never thought of before. Um, and it always comes out to be a great meal. The tacos are a crowd pleaser, man. Those are really, really good. 
We love the tacos, too, and with HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients, mouth-watering seasonal recipes, and it's all delivered right to your door. So you can skip the grocery store. There's a theme in our ads this week, right? Skip the stores. <laughs> spend time on yourself and your family. Let HelloFresh show up on your doorstep and make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. There's something for everyone to enjoy, all tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. But also, they're tested by my family for being delicious. HelloFresh recipes save you time you'd otherwise spend meal planning and shopping. And if Greg would please call Michael and tell him how much fun it is to participate, it could also be a family event at my house, too. So, Kim, have Greg call. Yes, Michael, come on. Get on board. It's a lot of fun. Greg does like I to I like cook. this, the revolt of the wise. <laughs> You know, it's good news that the fall harvest is officially on with HelloFresh. You can count on seasonal recipes like pumpkin cinnamon rolls and Friendsgiving-ready sides with fresh, high-quality ingredients that travel from the farm to your front door in less than a week. HelloFresh gives you the flexibility you need to easily customize your order on the app within minutes, so don't wait to get started. Go to HelloFresh.com slash sisters14 and use code SISTERS14 and get up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash SISTERS14. That's SISTERS14 and use code SISTERS14 and get up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. That'll save you a lot. So now let's turn to Joyce, who's going to take us through a really important conversation um, that stems out of General Milley's saying um, or being revealed to have had a conversation with his Chinese counterpart and uh, the issues that it raises about civilian control of the military and um, some other issues. So Joyce, why don't you explain the issue and start us on that conversation? Back in September of 2019, on September 30th, General Mark Milley was sworn in as the 20th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest-ranking officer in the U.S. military. A new book, due out next week by journalists Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, makes claims about his growing concern as Trump refused to acknowledge he'd lost the election. Milley's response has become controversial, and among the claims in the book, there are claims that he coordinated with other members of the Joint Chiefs, considering possible responses if Trump took steps to block the transfer of power or use U.S. military might to hold on to power. The book claims that Milley had calls with a Chinese counterpart to offer reassurances and to offer communications if there was an attack in the offing. So controversy erupts, and simultaneously, Milley is being hailed on one side as a hero and denounced as treasonous by other folks. Milley issued a statement saying that the conversations were routine, that they were part of an ongoing uh, motif of conversations held to manage relationships with foreign powers and also among the Joint Chiefs, but there are others like Alexander Vindman who were shocked by the reports, and Vindman tweeted that Milley should resign if the reporting was accurate. He, he said that Milley usurped civilian authority, 
broke chain of command and violated the sacrosanct principle of civilian control over the military. So the facts here are still emerging. They're not yet entirely clear. The January 6th committee did demand relevant records from the Joint Chiefs yesterday, so I think that clearer vision will emerge um, in the coming weeks. But given that the facts are still a little bit of a moving target, we wanted to discuss the legal and policy architecture around the dispute. So, Kim, why don't you start a little bit uh, with something that I talk about a lot with my Democratic Institution students, that civilian control of, of the military. Explain what that is, why it's important, and why it matters here. Absolutely. So uh, in America, this idea goes back to the founders who were very concerned about the existence of a standing army that could undermine democracy by being able to essentially overthrow the government that it professes to serve. So the principle of civilian control works by putting control of the armed services in the hands of civilian leadership. Uh, with a secretary uh, of defense that is chosen by the executive branch and confirmed by the legislative branch. It's part of that checks and balances uh, that that is a protection that the founders relied upon. And there's a lot of reasons why this is important, not just as a principle from the founders, but right up to modern day in practicality. Um, and, and they don't all deal with the the prospect of a government overthrow, although it's so strange to talk about that now, knowing how uh, more of a reality it, it seemed to be than we ever could realize. You know, one principle is that you want to have people who are in control, who are not primarily focused on military strategy when they're crafting, um, when they're making decisions at the head of the Department of Defense, like a general would be. It's no disrespect to a general, but a general's uh, expertise is in military strategy. You want someone who also balances the diplomacy, you know, the political solutions to any potential conflict, potentially, uh, particularly in an international, an international conflict, so that you have a political solution in play, not just a military one. Um, Another principle is having a nonpartisan military. You don't want a military that is fighting for one side or the other. You want your military to be nonpartisan, ready to act regardless of who is in charge. In this case, though, it seemed the real threat was coming from inside the White House. Recall that days after Donald Trump lost the election, he began firing people. You know, within his administration, uh, he got rid of the people who he did not like. And one of those people was Defense Secretary Mark Esper. Trump was angry about a few things, including Esper's apology. Remember, he apologized after being uh, a part of that Bible photo op that Donald Trump took uh, when the protesters, uh, the Black Lives Matter protesters were cleared from Lafayette Square and Donald Trump walked across the street, held up a Bible, uh, and Esper was on the scene. He later apologized for that. Trump was also mad that uh, Esper refused to invoke the Insurrection Act to put down Black Lives Matter protests across the country. So he wasn't his favorite person. He got rid of him, installed on a uh, interim basis. There were a lot of acting folks in the administration toward the end. Uh, someone named Christopher Miller, who had a thin resume. Um, and so, you know, it goes back to this idea that while you don't want to put primarily military people in charge of DOJ policy, you also don't want the makings of a coup. 
or using someone in the military for their own political purposes, which is what exactly what Millie was worried about toward the end, if you listen to the reporting from this book. So, Jill, there are also military lines of authority that are involved here. Can you, especially with your military experience, talk about the importance of the chain of command to the military? I mean, we all get that people in the military have to follow orders, but what does that mean for people at the level of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? And who does General Milley give and take orders from? So before I get to that question, Joyce, I just want to add to something that Kim said, um, which is one of the things that I learned when I became General Counsel of the Army was how closely state and DOD work together. I really had no idea about that. But it's an important thing for people to know that the military people do not um, make policy decisions without coordination, and that whatever happened in this conversation, it was fully staffed and coordinated, which means that the State Department did know about it and that the NSC knew about it. So that's important. Um, But I also want to make sure people understand what the chain of command, uh, what civilian control means before we get to chain of command. Civilian control means that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff reports to the Secretary of Defense, who is a civilian, uh, which is why it's unusual now. Of course, we have General Austin became Secretary Austin, um, but that was by special waiver of the requirement that he not have been in the service for a long time. And the TJAG who's the top JAG officer, reports to the general consul, and so on up the line, so that the civilians always outrank the military components under them. And that's how the civilian control works. Um, And that takes us to the same thing about the chain of command. So in the chain of command, General Milley reports to the Secretary of Defense, Um, he is not a commander in the sense of a combat commander. Combat commanders uh, report up to the secretary of their service. So they would report to the secretary of the army, for example. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, to the the chief of staff of the army who reports to the secretary of the army. So again, it's always a civilian at the top. Um, One example I can give where I came to realize how important chain of command was, was during my time, a union tried to unionize the army. Now think about this. I'm a private in the army and I say to my commander, I'm sorry, I have to consult with my union steward before I agree to follow your orders. This could happen in combat where, no, I'm not taking that hill. I'm consulting with my union steward. It's not during my working hours. So I came to realize how utterly ridiculous it was and how essential the, the uh, command structure is um, and how, how important it is that they're waiving that uh, chain of command in sexual assault cases or that they may. It looks like that's a final done deal is that in that one instance, a victim of sexual assault does not have to report to their commander. In all other cases, the commander has to be listened to. Otherwise, you cannot have a functioning military, particularly during combat. So I think that's really the importance of why 
People have to follow orders. And that means that the chief of staff and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has to follow the Secretary of Defense's orders. And that's how it is. If the president says, do something, they can advise him. He, he would be unwise not to ask for military input and advice. But once the decision is made, then it has to be followed. And one of the reasons that's important is, in this case, the facts are at issue. Did he say... In a normal, routine, fully staffed, coordinated phone conversation that's quite routine, I just want you to know everything's under control here. You have nothing to worry about. That would be in the course of his job and would not be something he would talk to either the Secretary of Defense or anybody else about. If he said something like, and by the way, if that ever came to pass, I will give you advance notice. That's a very different thing. It also depends on when he said it. If the president had already said, I want to attack China, any conversation like that would be a violation of the chain of command. Because once the order is issued, he can't question it. He has to follow it. Until it's issued, he can argue with the president. He can make his points known. But once the president decides, it is the president's decision, period. So that's how chain of command in the military works and how it's very important. So that's incredibly helpful to understanding this situation. My last question, and it's for both of you, it's just about how should this have worked? Because we were in this unprecedented situation. It's in some ways so hard to remember what the country felt like before January 6th. But remember, we, we've got Chris Miller, who comes from the National Counterterrorism Center and suddenly finds himself acting Secretary of Defense, not confirmed by the Senate. And he's doing some unusual things that make it look like the civilian part of this equation may be broken, civilian control of the military. He looks like he's thrown his lot in with Trump. All 10 of the living former secretaries of defense write an op-ed that runs in the Post making the point that the military must stay out of the transition of power. And, and Miller has done a number of things. He's refused to hold transition team meetings with the Biden transition team. And ahead of January 6th, he issues this order that prohibits the National Guard from being outfitted with, with anti-riot gear. And then on the 6th, the reporting, at least so far, is that he delayed the order to deploy the, the Guard for more than three hours. So he looks to have been firmly in the Trump camp. What do you think General Milley should have done in this situation? Will history treat him kindly or not? Jill, I'll start. Go, oh, go ahead. Well, I, was, I just wanted to chime in first since Jill is the expert and I didn't want to be the last person to speak <laughs> on this. Smart move, Kim. But just from my general understanding, and Jill will correct me if I'm wrong, what Milley did was not unusual. We have to, I think in some ways, this is being portrayed as if General Milley did something completely out of the ordinary and picked up the phone and called Chinese officials and suddenly was talking smack about the president of the United States. No, General Milley's job was to interface with his counterparts in other countries on a regular basis. And there are many uh, situations in which um, that conversation will include uh, assurances that uh, a, a war was not imminent. And it seems to me that what Millie said was a lot more in line with that more usual 
uh, conversation. Now, you have that other conversation that Millie had with Speaker Pelosi, which was a lot in which they both expressed a lot more, um, you know, uh, alarm. Candid. (laughs) Yes, a lot more candid. That's a perfect (laughs) word for it. That conversation in which they both sort of said, yeah, we don't know if the president is all right and this could be a problem. But in terms of what Milley said to his counterparts in China, that seemed more run of the mill, that seemed more a part of his normal job. But I want to hear what Jill has to say. Can can I just interject and say that I used to always tell my young lawyers, don't ever put anything into an email or say something (laughs) that you don't want to see on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow morning. That was sort of my standard of conduct. And this explains exactly why that happens. You know, that conversation between Millie and Nancy Pelosi, they were saying what was on the country's mind. You really don't want to see it reported on the front page of the Times. And it was in this case. And and there's apparently a transcript of that conversation. So it's even worse. But uh, Kim, you are, you stated everything completely correctly. Um, But I want to even make it more dramatic because it is my understanding that Secretary of Defense Esper encouraged that call, that yeah. he is the one who requested that it happen. So there was civilian control, and all the rules were followed. And you are right, this is a traditional, routine kind of conversation. There was nothing unusual about it. So I don't understand. And I, I also want to point out um, that... You know, I also co-host another podcast called iGen Politics. And if you want to know more about Chris Miller, please listen to the episode in which Victor, she, and I interview Chris Miller. It will give you a good insight into maybe why General Milley may have gone further than he maybe wanted to or should have, but um, I think you'll enjoy that episode. And... Um, I, unfortunately, I, we talked to, in an upcoming episode, uh, Colonel Vinman, but it was before we knew about his tweet, um, mm. which I wish I had known about because I would have certainly questioned him. I think that he overstated uh, dramatically, and I would love to give him a chance. Um, I, and I have reached out to him by email to ask him uh, more specifically about it because I'd like to hear what his thoughts are. I I have consulted with a couple of generals uh, from my days in the Pentagon um, before, you know, coming forward with today's episode. Um, and in terms of what General Milley could have done, it's really tricky because basically there is the final commander in chief, the only commander in chief, the only one who can give combat orders of this nature is the president. And as I said earlier, once the president issues a directive, that's it. And he does not go through the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He goes directly to the combat commander. And that's just the way it is. So do we need to look at, um, for example, the nuclear launch code rules and say, do we want the president, whoever it is, uh, and, and remember, the issue of stability was uh, raised in the last days of the Nixon administration in the same way that it has been here for the Trump administration. I mean, there's two examples in my lifetime where there was fear that there might be that wag the dog um, movie come to life. 
And so maybe we need to look at it. The rules for nuclear launch were based on uh, a Cold War where we thought there might be an immediate need where you had minutes to respond. That's not the world we're living in right now. And I think that maybe it's time to relook at those rules. Well, I think everyone knows that Barb isn't with us this week. She's off with one of her kids for a sports event. Do you think she's wearing her third love bras while she's on the road? What do you think, Kim? Well, I know she loves talking about it. So, you know, if she is, (laughs) I'm sure everyone will know. What do you think, Joe? I think she is because comfort is the real thing with third love bras. And we know that Barb really values her comfort. Even Brisby. I mean, Brisby loves comfort too, right? Exactly. It's unanimous. <laughs> you know, the thing I always think about Barb is if you could put a pocket on a third love bra, <laughs> she'd never wear anything else. You're absolutely right. And you know, Third Love creates high quality underwear, sleep and loungewear. Cup sizes range from AA to I, including exclusive half cups and lounge and sleepwear in sizes extra small to 3X. So get ready to feel good. If you don't love it, exchanges and returns are free. Third Love gives gently used return bras to women in need donating over $40 million in bras so far. That, I know, Barb really can get behind. So do I. I really like everything about Third Love. I love the bras. They're super comfortable. I love that they're socially conscious. Now you too can take the easy fitting room quiz, and Third Love does all the rest, focusing your fit on size, shape, current issues, and your personal style to deliver underwear that's perfect for you. They even have stylists on standby to help. I like Third Love's washable silk PJs with a soft like a peach touch. It's a machine washable luxury. So when Third Love says current issues, I don't think they mean the news we talk about, but Third Love knows (laughs) you deserve to feel comfortable and confident 24-7. So right now they are offering our listeners 20% off the first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash sistersinlaw now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash sistersinlaw for 20% off today. Look for the link in our show notes. I want to thank all of our wonderful listeners for always sending in such great questions. We really love this segment of the show and look forward to answering. If you have any questions for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week. That's where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. And today's first question comes from at Barb G-A-L-W. Why is it always wire fraud or mail fraud that people are accused of? Isn't there just a plain vanilla fraud? And uh, (laughs) Joyce, you want to answer that one? This is a really great question, and it gives me the opportunity to say that criminal law is statutory law. So 
you have to actually be charged with a crime that Congress or your state legislature or other legislative body has created and has put on the books. So you've got notice in advance that it's a crime before you're charged. In the federal system, fraud and wire are two of the most commonly used fraud charges. They're very, very expansive. Um, There are bank fraud charges and other fraud charges that are narrower. But really, when you think about our computer-driven lives, wire fraud captures a lot of the deceptive thefts that go on. So that's why you see those charges brought the most. Good answer, Joyce. Um, And it's a fraud case that was brought against um, Holmes in the Theranos case. So there's a live example. That's right. Uh, Our second question comes from at JTILT3. I hope IL stands for Illinois. Um, (laughs) The question is, I thought Mueller had prepared an obstruction case against Trump and his investigation was complete for the DOJ to prosecute. Why isn't the DOJ bringing charges? What's taking so long? Kim, you want to take that one? Yeah, I want to start, but I also want to hear my sister's take on it, too. Um, So, yes, Mueller did prepare uh, obstruction cases. He actually prepared 10 in his report. There were 10 instances of obstruction of justice. But what I didn't think that they were all good, maybe just six or seven of them. Yeah, well, there were more than one. Um, So what those uh, what that preparation was actually for was Congress. It was to give Congress a basis if they were so to choose to bring uh, an impeachment uh, charges against impeachment charges against President Trump at that time. uh, And they chose not to. I think it was more that was the more direct uh, audience more so than the DOJ, but I want to hear what uh, my sisters say about well, that. I agree with you, but I want to add that I think that what he was really saying is, if I could indict a sitting president, these are what I would indict him for. But since I am bound to follow the Office of Legal Counsel opinion that says I cannot indict a sitting president, that's why I'm turning to Congress to impeach him for these things. However, I would change the listener's question to, he's not the sitting president anymore. Why isn't DOJ taking some action on that? And also, what about his audit? What's going to happen with that? So, Jill, I'll, I'll take a stab at the question you pose, right? He's no longer a sitting president. Mueller actually took the step of preserving evidence, contemplating that he would at some point hopefully be a former president. There are a couple of reasons that DOJ might not have chosen to indict, and primarily they fall into two buckets. One is they think that there's an evidentiary failure. They've looked at the evidence and they've decided that they don't have sufficient evidence to obtain and sustain a conviction on the the 10 charges that Mueller lays out or some of them. And then the second possibility is, you know, prosecutors don't indict every case where they've got evidence of a crime. There has to be some priority setting. Well, you would think a case involving a former president who engaged in serious misconduct, that that would be a high priority. Sometimes there are decisions that are made that it's not in the national interest to prosecute certain cases. This could be one of those sort of situations where DOJ might make a decision that it would be too divisive or just not in the national interest, sort of like the torture cases at the end of the Bush administration. 
Um, Jill, I think I know where you and I are both on those charges. I think that they appear to be sustained by the evidence and that it's important to bring those sorts of charges. You cannot have a president in office who obstructs justice and not hold him accountable. So I think our our, uh, listener's question is a really good and a really important one. Thank you all for listening to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and me, Jill Wine-Banks. Barbara Quaid will be back with us next week as usual. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. This week's sponsors are Helix, HelloFresh, and Third Love. You can find their links in the show notes and please support them as they really make this show possible. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We do love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters-in-Law. I'm going tonight. I'm very excited. I'm going to the ballet outdoors at Ravinia, which is our outdoor oh. venue. Oh, that's and, beautiful. Uh, which ballet? The Joffrey Ballet. And it's, oh. I, I mean, we're subscribers. Um, my husband and I both adore ballet. And me too. This is a way that I feel safe seeing it because it's outdoors. And that's I'm perfect. Just, I, I'm so How thrilled. Wonderful. I cannot, I mean, I'm like, I'm beside myself now. I have to go do my hair and get dressed up to go.